0: Hi, and welcome to Decoding AQ, helping you to learn the tools, mindsets, and actions to thrive in an ever-changing world. Hi, and welcome to the next episode of Decoding AQ. I have with me today Greg Verdino, and he's one of our AQ certified coaches, so welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Ross. They, they, these were super rare people and individuals that were pioneering the way forward with us and we're just at this tipping point of I think we're at 98 so we're just about to hit the 100 and you're a, mm. a business futurist and a, as it describes a digital transformation expert and I think that's a, an amazing area where people are really looking at how are these inert things all of this digitization of the world has it really land for people and land value and you've had a career at the forefront of change and advising hundreds of organizations, many of the Fortune 500, I think probably 10% of them, uh, by the looks of it, have, uh, you know- At one time
1: or another, they were in the Fortune 500. (laughs) Not everybody has fared equally well over time, right? (laughs) Very
0: true, very true. And um, I wanna begin actually, Greg, back with why did you choose sociology? As a degree.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, um, what interested me about sociology was the um, sort of its focus on the societal forces that shape who we are as people um, and the ways in which societal change changes who we are as people. Um, And it was interesting because when I graduated college, and I started looking for work, I I knew I wasn't actually at one point, I thought I might be a sociologist and was gonna, um, maybe this was my first adaptation, perhaps, but um, I was I was thinking of becoming a sociologist and continuing on my education, getting a PhD, maybe working in a university. And one of my, my faculty advisors suggested, look, I'll support you all the way if that's what you want to do. But before you do that, go experience the world for a year or two. And I said, well, great. Sound advice. Um, And I said, well, crap, that means I have to get a job. Um, So I... um, I decided that I would look for work in advertising or marketing um, and started applying at ad agencies in the middle of this terrible recession in 1990. And um, one of the most consistent questions that I got when I was first, you know, when I was interviewed for these jobs, it was always sociology. What does that have to do with advertising? And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Um, That, you know, I'm like, to me, it was pretty apparent, right? advertising was, in fact, a social force that was shaping human behavior. Um, And, um, you know, but the people working in advertising, at least the people that I was speaking with, weren't seeing that at all. To them, it was like, nope, it's you know, it's it's about generating revenue for companies. It's like, no, no, you're shaping consumer behavior. You're shaping the way humans believe and and how they behave. This is you know, not not to be you know, kind of you know Pollyanna-ish about it, right? But that's that's what advertising does. It's one of those really powerful forces. And I was maybe. Um, you know, I kind of think of myself as a reformed marketer, right? I kind of grew up through marketing for you know, through for a number of years. Um, and as marketing became more and more social, right, as you know, the internet happened and social media happened, it became all the more obvious how sociology and marketing at least were very much related. Um,
0: it, it's interesting, and these were these were big agencies, right? This was such and this is Wonder Man, this was Digitus, you know, these were. People and organizations that were shaping the communications for some of the biggest brands on the planet. Sure, and as absolutely. you said, this responsibility of how do we influence this people's thinking? You know, and we think about that a lot when we look at politics and voting, you know, and various social issues. Sure, we might not make that connection when we think about commercials and business. Right. Know, and ultimately for you studying it, it's the same thing right we're shaping the way people see things believe behave and act
1: absolutely and-, and i you know i think what's interesting not to interrupt you is that finally now it seems that at least some brands and the agencies that work with them are starting to recognize that yeah. um, as we're seeing more you know focus on things like sustainability and inclusiveness and diversity and 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 um all sorts of things now
0: and and it is a I see it because we share a similar background. You know, that was my um, you know, Ross 1.0 was the brand and marketing guy yep. uh, before, you know, my own adaption. But the the responsibility we have when we communicate, choosing what we communicate and then also on the other side, choosing what we hear. And often there's a a massive challenge of those Chinese whispers. You know, we've all played the game of it starts one way, but by the time it's been repeated 20 times, it's something completely different. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's one of the challenges in terms of how we as human beings go through our lives, how we adapt and how we shift from one way of thinking, how we can let go of it, you know, and how we make room for new thoughts and new opportunities. And so what happened for you after that kind of journey of advertising and marketing and where you shifted a lot in terms of doing a lot of speaking, authoring, you know, and advising organizations in yeah. and around change? Yeah. Tell me a story of, you know, what what were some of the pivotal moments of that for you, Graham? Yeah.
1: I mean, I think to me, some of the earliest pivotal moments, maybe not in my very first job, but by my second or third job, even um, what I discovered, and maybe I should have been clued in from that interview process you know, with, with, with marketers not understanding why sociology was relevant, um, but um, probably a couple of jobs in I started to see that even the biggest agencies I worked for were were pretty change resistant. Like if you were an agency that made its bread and butter selling TV campaigns or direct mail, doing direct mail execution or whatever it was, um, when the world started to change around you, um, most people in the organization Uh, I think, had a generally low level of of awareness as to what that change would mean for them, uh, both individually, but ultimately as an organization. And probably even fewer people in the organization wanted to be the person to drive that change and make it happen. Um, so almost by default, in some ways, I mean, I've always been interested in new technologies and in changes as a, as a, a, a force. But um, it was, I would like to say it was by design, but probably more by default, I found myself in the seat of the guy that was kind of doing the thing nobody else wanted to do. Um, you know, so, you know, whether, you know, so it was things like in, you know, like early, you know, sort of an early, you know, early on in my career, you know, helping, you know, this almost sounds stupid now, um, but I was working, we were, I, we were working, my client was Ford Motor Company and Ford Motor Company had never targeted, I mean, it obviously not never, um, but had never targeted Generation X, right? When Generation X was still young, right? Um, And, you know, I was the guy, you know, who raised my hand and said, well, wait a second, you know, they're not so young as, you know, as to not be car buyers, right? Um, These are, you know, these are prime people who are in the prime market for new vehicles, first vehicles, etc. at the time. Um, So convincing a client to even make that kind of shift, you know, think, consider a new target audience and what tactics might be appropriate to reach and engage that target audience to, you know, traditional agency saying well we're not really gonna you know we want to see what happens with this internet thing and me saying no 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 no, we need to launch a a business right and skunk works you know I, i skunk worked a um a digital agency inside a traditional agency right um so it was kind of like the this realization that um so many people in traditional organizations and legacy style roles were not really make were, were not as open to change as they could or should be and i think that was a kind of a pivotal moment or a set of pivotal moments in my career um and then it just kind of snowballed frankly <laughs> and um you know i kind of found myself you know when Um, you know so when digital first bubbled up and became something of interest you know generally you know I was one of the earliest people looking well what does this mean but I always came at it from a perspective of not just what does it mean for the business but what does it mean for its customers Um, you know that sort of sociologist hat Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, you know never came off so to speak and um, and you know found that, you know, I almost, I built a muscle or a set of muscles really for uh, being able to lean into and change, right? To adapt in the face of this changing environment I was in, whether that meant finding new opportunities for the business I worked in, carving out and defining new roles, making sure that I was a student of change, you know, kind of tuning into the signals um, that were all around everybody, but nobody else was paying attention to. Um, And that kind of became became the, you know, kind of almost like the hallmark of my career. Um, and then the mode by which as the time went on, the mode by which I could deliver value to customers or to people in general gradually changed where, you know, I was doing less and less consulting and more and more advisory and speaking. And, you know, how do I scale that by writing books and, you know, and so on and so forth. So it, it's been an interesting ride.
0: Well, why do you think, change is so hard. And you mentioned there, you know, maybe there's this natural aversion human beings and by then virtue organizations have against change. What is it about change that we're so uh,
1: about? I mean, I I mean, there's a lot of things, I think. I mean, part of it, I think at the human level is, you know, I think aversion to change in some ways is hardwired into us, right? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, um a um survive in some ways it's interesting right that you know adaptability you know kind of is tied to this whole idea of the survival of the fittest but at a certain point you get to a point where change in your environment becomes a threat right um and i think a lot of people just kind of you know have it so embedded in them whether it is hardwired or it's just a mental conditioning that you know change is risk and risk is bad and um i will avoid that at all co- uh, cost um i think that some of it is certainly conditioning especially in a business environment right where um in so many companies risk is not rewarded um, in fact it's quite the opposite so the you know we 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 even if we might be more inclined to take risks or to um to you know adapt in the face of change we you know i think people a lot of people very quickly learn that that will not be rewarded and in fact i will be rewarded for doing quite the opposite um and then you've got the organization right where the organization you know, the culture gets, you know, calcified, right, around optimization, right? Most organizations get really good at what they do. And when they succeed, they just keep getting better and better and better at it, Um, but don't have a lot of incentive or drive to get better at getting, you know, get better at doing new things. Um, That's changing now, obviously, as the world changes so much around us. But, you know, that, you know, is the, you know it's the you know the you know it's sort of the you know the you know steady state for a lot of large
0: companies in particular um that they you know and the operating model was all around as you said optimization about managing risk about yeah. protecting what people have and often then we're not only adverse to it but we're blind to opportunity and it just comes in with a label on in the front of it that, that we can't read that opportunity we just see threat you know and that that reality to be able to wear new glasses that can identify things correctly is hard when you're on the inside of something so really? i guess it's one of these dichotomies of advisors and consultants that see through their own lens from the outside how have you managed to shift the behavior on the inside so if this whole challenge of change is there they're seeing things in, as risks how have you managed successfully over your career to help them see things differently to help them see change as good and to rewrite that relationship with change what are yeah. the some some of the you know techniques yeah. or stories yeah. or or elements around that
1: greg Yeah, so, I mean, there are so many things (laughs) that I could probably point to. Um, You know, I think for me, a lot of it comes down to what are the small things? Um, You know, I think, and this is... um, You know, one of, you know, I've been involved with digital transformation programs of some shape or form for longer than people were calling it digital transformation. Even, you know, I I didn't think of it this way even, but inside, you know, ad agencies launching a digital division, or I I worked um, for a while at Arbitron, which is now part of Nielsen, but they were the radio ratings company here in the US, um, you know, looking to figure out how they could play, you know, kind of stake their claim in the internet measurement business. You know, and um, you know, what were the new ways of measuring digital media um, that were frankly not available in the world of traditional media at the time? Um and and what I found was that, you know, and then, you know, again, you know, kind of working as an outside advisor with other companies on their digital transformation programs, that where these programs tended to fail, they tended to fail for a number of reasons, right? Um, one that I found fairly consistently was when an organization tries to to change too much too quickly, um, a transformation can crumble under its own weight. Um, And, um, you know, so one, you know, one thing that I would say as sort of a general Guiding principle is this idea that, you know, change, you know, because it is a journey, transformation is a journey, um, should be undertaken one step at a time, which sounds obvious. Um, but the number of times I've worked in organizations or with organizations who feel such pressure uh to catch up or get ahead um, that they are willing to kind of you know move fast and break things, but they're a legacy business with billions of dollars of revenue and tens of thousands of employees and and like. You know, It's it just it's unsustainable. It's not feasible. It's not possible. And in, in most cases, um, communication is key. In um, so many organizations, even if the leadership has a strong change vision, that, that vision doesn't get communicated through the organization. It doesn't get explained in a way um, that gets the organization, even you know, the people down to the reception desk on board with that change. What will it mean for me? How will my life be different or better? Um, but also a candid, how might my life be worse? Uh, which is something that a lot of organizations shy away from, right? Um, you know, so communication is key. Um, you know, one of the biggest pieces of advice I give leaders when I work with them is always to be a student of change. And you kind of, you know, reference this a bit of, you know, of you know, with people not really seeing or not being willing to see um, change as it's happening around them, or um, you know, they get so embedded in their day to day that they don't make the time to really think about not just see but study (laughs) the change as it's happening all around them Um, or they take a very narrow view of that change how are my top two competitors changing not how is the world at large changing Uh, not how are companies outside of my industry innovating in ways that might hold lessons for my business Um, so to me that's one of the biggest things is really you know advising people to be students of change, but also, you know, helping them to do so, right, you know, even down to like, you know, creating a curriculum almost of here are some things you should be reading. Here's where I get my information. Here are some sources you might consider. Um, for one client, we actually, we literally made a worksheet, right, where they could put in like daily, what are the three things I'm going to do today to learn something new about something happening outside my company, um, you know, and, and it was very much a necessary evil in some ways or necessarily tool um, for for this organization because they were so driven by day-to-day workload and week-to-week optimization and month-to-month revenue numbers that they just didn't make the time to look outside of what's happening right now because they couldn't you know find the time right it was
0: you know kind of crazy but it was practical and useful (laughs) i had these two pictures forming in my head, Greg, as you were talking. One was when I walk my dogs in the morning and we go through the forest and I catch myself at certain points looking at the floor and I'm looking at the ground because it's a bit uneven because there's some tree roots and various bits. And I do that for a little bit and then I figure out, hey, I'm on a walk. (laughs) I mean, nature, it's nice. I need to look up and see the sun and see, you know, the horizon. And that gives me a sense of perspective and place. And I guess it's this ability to have that ambidexterity, to look Mm. up and look down, look in and out. And the other picture that was going on in my mind, because my mind has gifted me in a way in which it it creates these pictures and stories, was actually as bizarre as it is, Greg, but I want to share it. It was a set of penguins I don't know what you call a load of penguins Uh, there will be a name for these penguins but where where you have them all huddled together for warmth and the outside goes into the core and the core goes into the outside and so you have this edge to the high you know to the colony that might Mm -hmm. be what they're called who knows colony let's go with it um and they're aware of the environment. They're aware of what's going on. And in the core, they're so insulated from it. They're comfortable, they're nice, they're they're happy, but they've got to go and brave it. They've got to go and brave it on the edge. And I, I just had that same picture as you were talking about an organisation, that when you're in the core, you're so focused, so comfortable, you almost need that tool set of, you know, what are you going to go and try new? Where are you going to the edge? And to have a lookout and to look beyond your feet where you're keeping your egg from dropping on the on the ice, you know, and managing that risk. And I want to cover a little bit, Greg, in terms of you've created something called the Adapt Manifesto. Before we get into that, because I find it fascinating and the areas of where you've articulated a number of values really touched me deeply, but I want to uh, rewind as to why did you create it? What was the, sure? what was the inspiration behind creating that Greg?
1: So, so um, I co-created it with a colleague um, guy named Ian Patterson in the UK, actually up in the North. Um, and um, you know, he, he and I were both sort of itinerant digital transformation consultants. Uh, we had worked inside same companies at certain times, but we we're off doing our own work uh, with our own clients at other times. Um, and, you know, we always would kind of use each other as sounding boards, um, you know, and and thought partners as we came across challenges or issues or opportunities or something. Hey, I don't know how to do this. Have you done that? Um, And as we, you know, the more stories we shared, um, the more we realized um, that you know, the, you know, the, you know, it's a sort of like almost the the mythical, you know, stat of 70 to 80% of all transformations fail was actually true in practice, right? It's yeah. not just
0: something, you know. It's like, uh, you know, 80% of all statistics are made up. Right, and this <laughs> yeah. one turned out to be right, uh, yeah.
1: more or less. And you know, we were seeing that with our own clients, frankly, where more often than not, um, initiatives we were involved with would fail to achieve their full potential at, at a minimum. Um, Um, Which might you might say well then you're terrible consultants right but, um, but you know and maybe we are but the the truth is that um, what we started to see was that in the organizations where transformation failed to take hold um, and failed to achieve its objectives. there were sort of a set of, you know, there essentially there was no operating system for change in place. And in the organizations where change was more successful and things were going relatively well, there was an operating system for change in place. Um, The organizations were just more change ready. Um, And we started to talk about, well, what are the attributes we're seeing? And what are the things that these organizations are doing differently? Um, And we wanted to as we began to kind of. As they, these things began to coalesce into a common set of traits that we were seeing, um, we wanted to find a way to articulate that, to document it, um, and you know, kind of put it on digital paper. <laughs> and um, you know, we were inspired by you know, functionally or form-wise, the Agile Manifesto, uh, which obviously has lots of legs and is you know is, you know has changed not only the way software gets built but the way business gets done in a lot of ways. Um, You know, so we kind of followed their form. Um, But, you know, our objective wasn't to necessarily tell a company how to run a project, but to um, kind of suggest a set of behaviors, really, um, or action steps that leaders in an organization could take to Um, drive change more effectively in that organization. We didn't want to say what the change should be, right? Because for one organization, it might be, we're expanding into the next geographic market over. For the next, it might be a whole scale digital transformation. For another, it might be, you know, a business model innovation or whatever. You know, we've gone from remote, from uh, physical to virtual, whatever the change is. Um, But we wanted to make sure, you know, we wanted to kind of articulate to leaders, like here are the things that you, should be thinking about and doing in your organization as a sort of a, a set of
0: road rules in yeah. essence principles for principles for the new operating system for yeah. change and yeah, I want to and- dig into a couple of these greg and I'm going to take us through and share and perhaps I'll I'll share maybe the the first three and then pick one of them and riff on that one so the the first three that you've got in there of sort of values is people and culture over tools and technology. People and culture over tools and technology. The second one, always on adaption over one-time change. So always on adaption over one-time change. And the third one, evolutionary change over revolutionary disruption. So of those three, dive into one of us one of them for us greg and and put some uh technicolor on it
1: sure so um let's go with evolutionary change um which really is what led us to thinking about this as adaptive business or adaptability in business as opposed to Transformation. Um, you know, and and you know, you're 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 pulling from the value set. There's also yeah. a set of 10 principles, and it's no accident that one of those 10 principles is revolution through evolution. So what we were seeing in organizations as they were, and you know, again, the roots of this it came out of digital transformation, but we believe it is much broader than just digital transformation, but it came out of our work in digital transformation. And what we saw um, was essentially one of two patterns in most legacy companies. Um, One was trying to do, as I already referenced, trying to do too much all at once. Um, you're kind of under this sort of like disrupt or die kind of mentality. Um, and essentially disrupt or die in those cases became disrupt and die. Um, you know, we, you know, GE was a perfect example, right? They were going to, they were going to be driving the, you know, transformation of the internet of things. They were driving internet of things. Um, and then, you know, they kind of crumbled. They went from poster child for transformation to pariah for transformation and a lot of ways um you know so companies either would you know would try to do too much all at once have this everything was a big bang or they would kind of fall prey to um i'm sure you're familiar with like alvin toffler future shock right they would kind of fall prey to it's like it's like you know redheaded stepsister shock of the now right there's so much changing so quickly in so many different ways and areas and spaces and markets that we're going to do nothing. Uh, We don't know where to begin. Um, We're the rabbit in the headlights, whatever, right. Rabbit in the headlights, right? So you would have one of these two things, too much transformation or none at all. Um, And what we recognized was that the organizations who were most successful in their transformations were the ones who were able to take a a more considered approach and you kind of it's a a a set of small but sequential steps
0: that add up over time to be true transformation um so it's that kaizen approach you know of continual improvement but deployed in a way in which was uh cumulative to achieve the transformation and i guess it comes back to your Mm. you know starting with these small steps and i think Whilst these, as you said, are the the values, you've also got a load of actual principles of be a student of change, embrace ambiguity. And you mentioned revolution through evolution. But in terms of an organization and what you've experienced, does it have to be the same across all? So all areas of that organization has to look at evolutionary and incremental, or do they have, as you mentioned, like skunk works that can exist in this little playground that deals with this type of revolution or yeah. evolution yeah. over here what's your thoughts yeah. in no, that kind um, of balance across organizations yeah. versus an individual practice or principle
1: yeah so um No, it doesn't need to be the same everywhere in the organization. Um, What does need to be consistent across an organization, from what I've seen and in my belief, is um, an ability to learn and share lessons across the organization, Um, even if change is kind of uh, spiky in different places, right? Um, A lot of organizations... Squiggly,
0: messy, and tangled.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and, and that's why... Um, you know, there's another principle called that we call the power of and um and you know when we put that within the context of particularly a legacy organization it's this idea that you can be innovating in one area without destroying value in another um and that also means you can be fast in one area and slow in another you can be the leader in one but a fast follower in another um, you can be a traditional organization and a, an innovative organization um you know it's one of those you know kind of you know holding the two things in your mind kind yeah. of concepts is you know a lot of times you know i'll talk with you but we're a bank we're not a technology company it's like well no no you need to reframe that um you're a bank and a technology company what does that look like right um you know and how do you not you know and a lot of you know i mean you'll use banking as another example um you know like that you know this idea of, well you know now that the world's opening up again where you have to reinvest in our branches and get people coming into the branches um maybe like I wouldn't advise you shut your branches, right? Um, But at the same time, you can't count on the world going back to the way the world had always been. And you can't take the foot, your foot off the pedal of digital innovation. Um, So absolutely, you know, organizations, you know, can and should have sort of different speed approaches. Um, You know, it's almost like the two speed or two curve organization, right? Where you've got kind of like the fast and the slow. Um, But with, a lot of rigor around how you take the learnings and the improvements that you find in one area of the business and think about how to scale it into the rest of the business.
0: I think that's a key point, Greg, is that whatever's going on, the the shift and I liken it to between an individual that has a brain and an organization that has a mind, which is a collection of brains, and this ability to have fast and open feedback loops. So that we can, instead of, oh, I don't want to share that because it's seen as something that didn't go right or wrong between, oh, I'll share it just within my team, but I'll share it across the organization. And then, of course, you've got this challenge of information noise, that as organizations scale, there's more and more noise, more and more metrics, more and more measurements, more, you know, just saying, and, (laughs) you know, that's hard. And one of the things that we've talked about before and through the process is this ability to unlearn, you know, and to be able to let go of things. And I I, uh, was intrigued by one of the other values that you've got, and they interlink in lots of places, but this curiosity over certainty and that challenge to to do that is an interesting one. So tell me a little bit more about either curiosity over certainty and it's kind of linked a little bit to flexibility over firm plans and structures yeah. for a modern organization, and perhaps how that might link to one of the other principles as well,
1: yeah, so um so you know obviously many you know experts tend to be very sure of themselves uh in the areas in which we are experts i right? mean um and as you know it, you know that leads to um sort of very strict worldview, if not, you know, if not tempered with with curiosity. And, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, we were speaking to this sort of notion that, um, you know, there's almost like a, a set of false knowns in most organizations, right, the assumptions that around which the business operates, that people Presume remain true even though the world has changed, um, and but leaders in that organization remain resolute and believing in those assumptions. And there's a, there's a phrase I've been using in my speeches for I don't know seven or so years that the way you've always done business will be the way you go out of business. <laughs> um, you know, and you know, and you know, we wanted to speak to that you know concept essentially of like you know if you think something is true. You need to think again, right? Um, Revalidate it. Right. Revalidate. Humility.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. At a minimum, you know, be curious about whether something has invalidated something you're certain of, Um, but also more importantly, embrace the idea that there are inexpert air quotes people um, who might come to the challenge with a very different point of view. Um, and embrace those different points of view. Um, I once did work with a large defense contractor. Um, I don't know if I can name them, but they do, you know, obviously military defense, but they also do things like signal crossing systems for uh, railroads, for example. Um, And one of the leaders there, you know, know, kind of told a story about um, a competitor, an upstart competitor who had just been funded um, and was producing what most of the engineers in the organization considered to be just barely good enough technology. And their point of view was, look, you know, if we're keeping people safe from driving across a train track, um, we don't there is no room for just good enough. And he said, well, the markets where they're selling their systems, are markets where there is no sig- safety signaling on those train tracks at all? You know, so while we might have the technically best solution in the market. In a market where there are no signaling systems, good enough is a hell of a lot better than they have today. Um, and it was a classic disruptive innovation play, right? They were, you know, doing just good enough, low end of the market, with of course an intention of improving over time and taking on the big boys. Um, and you know, it was, it was one of those examples, right, of somebody who the assumption was our tech, our systems need to perform flawlessly, um, and the competitors. Um, assumption was our systems only need to perform better than no system at all. Um, And it was allowing them to kind of, you know, to chip away at the low end of the market. Right. So, um, you know, it's that kind of thing, of course, is happening all the time now,
0: especially with digital. Right. Um, You know, so. It's a balance for brands, isn't it? In this sort of, as you mentioned, the rabbit in the headlights that might lead to no action or procrastination that Or we're not going to launch that yet because it's not at the level for our brand or for the safety or insert issue as to why we're not launching it. Versus if you're not embarrassed by what you're launching, you've launched it too late. Right. You know, and that permission to be iterative with the collaborators called your customers, (laughs) that they can be involved in the creation process. And I remember years ago, a book. It was a real thin little book. It was by Seth Godin, actually. And it's called Ship It, as in mm-hmm. shipping product, shipping. Yep, and yep, it was a yep. working book that you filled out. And I'd at the time had this idea for many years of something. And it just sat on the shelf because I'm busy. I've got clients, got all these things. And I made the commitment to complete this Ship It book. And within a few days, I'm now shipping that idea and that product. And I think this boils down to again this balance of how are we shaping our thoughts and behaviors for this operating system and operating manual where i know it's got to be dead right before it goes out and this you know everybody on board i'm interested in on this subject greg so something that we believe in is you know leave no one behind one of your principles you know everyone on board create alignment and linking that to a value of collaboration and inclusion over competition and exclusion Mm -hmm. so in a commercial you know organization this idea of inclusivity and diversity has been there they're running a shift to figure out how to do that better but i'm not sure that they're really embraced or adapted to this thought of competition not being competition and tell me a little bit more about how you see that as someone who sees the future who spots the trends of what is the thinking behind that
1: yeah so um first of all i think you're absolutely right (laughs) Um, in terms of where organizations have kind of where they've come forward and where they've kind of been stuck um Uh, I want to say something else before I get into it is that one of the things that to me was beautiful about the Adapt Manifesto was that nothing, I mean, and maybe, you know, to me, nothing in there is brand spanking new, right? Um, You almost look at it and go, yes, of course. Um, But it, and because, you know, people have been writing about adaptability for ages, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But for some reason, these things tended to get lost in the shuffle of the day-to-day madness of running the noise. um, the noise, absolutely. Um, but you know, one of the things that um I think is apparent um is that you know business you know, sort of business is moving towards more ecosystems, right? We've seen the rise of the platform companies, uh, which are valuable for their ecosystem much more so than they're valuable for what they in themselves provide, other than the fact that they have like the interface between the customer and the company in a way, right? Um, you know, Airbnb would be nowhere without owners and, and you know, renters and um, Apple, you know, essentially this would just be like a, you know, an expensive brick, right? <laughs> if, if it weren't for the app store and, you know, services, um, you know, so I think, you know, organizations need to develop this sort of ecosystem thinking, um, you know, and which I think in many cases, at least calls for them to consider the ways in which competitors might be collaborators, um, especially in a world where the challenges we need to address are much larger than the challenges any individual organization is likely to be able to address and that was kind of one of the other pieces of thinking around um you know kind of around um, the adapt Manifesto, and also my book never normal is that you know and i i posted something the other day on, on linkedin that you know and i don't think most people have you know like we're so focused on digital disruption i don't think most people are thinking or realizing even though we should be that digital will be the least of all disruptions um i mean it will be child's play it was child's play compared to covid right um you know but it'll be child play compared to sort of the economic changes that are happening you know where capitalism itself may be called into question the political turmoil the you know certainly the climate crisis and all of these things that companies will need to adjust to adapt to right um you know and you know so we've got these huge challenges we need to solve as organizations and if we can't solve them ourselves we can't just throw up our hands and say nope not us right um so how do we partner with other organizations that share our um through our vision for the future, share our commitment to making the world a different place, if not a better place. Um, and how do we come up with solutions that actually benefit people? Um, and you know, and you know, increasingly ecosystems are becoming the way to do that. It's being able to you know share. Uh, resources share assets, um, you know, and even to the point where I've, see, you know, seen you know, McKinsey's done some thinking about this. Tata's done some thinking about this. The idea that industries may ultimately disappear. There's so much blur between industries even today that you know would will there be an automotive industry tomorrow or will it be a mobility industry where the car company has a role but maybe not even the central role um and how do you prepare your company to actually have a role and to you know either be an ecosystem maker or uh you know a valuable ecosystem participant so um you know to me you know when you think about everybody on board that might not be where i start Uh, right? I, you know, if I were a leader in an organization, I think more about how do I get the people in accounting thinking about customer experience problems and the people in sales thinking about, you know, a back office issue, or how do I make sure that the people that are junior in the organization have a voice in the organization? And are those, you know, are we inclusive and diverse enough uh, that we can actually, you know, you know, you know, be a better business, and are we hearing our customers? <laughs> um, but certainly at some point thinking, you know, how do we actually change, you know, affect change in the world on a much grander scale than we could do if we were
0: just making, you know, breakfast
1: cereal? Yeah.
0: And I think if change was hard, and if we think about as an individual and, you know, Michael Jackson's, you know, man in the mirror <laughs> starts with yourself, right? Right. And if that's hard for an individual to give ourselves permission of how we change, who we want, what we might think, how we might behave, whether we're influenced by a great campaign that Greg did in his advertising years, or you know we're primed by a film we watch or a conversation we have. When we then complicate that with teams and organizations, and then we figure, well, change really hard. Collaboration is even harder you know this is a piece on top of that where I'm reminded of what's fed us to now what's got us to now and how we program society to function and of course when we were in schools we were in this dichotomy this paradox of saying do projects together but we're going to test you on your own you know how can you work on projects go and do that bit of homework with your you know research partner but in the test no I can't copy off Greg that's cheating and so we have this dichotomy of our upbringing and our perceptions of what is right and wrong what is good what is bad what's effective what's not effective between knowledge change collaboration and i loved how you made it really practical there greg of you know collaboration at the beginning it can be cross departmental cross functional collaboration at the next stage can be cross organization at the next stage can be cross organization uh, across industries know and how if we're motivated by a similar problem and we have a vision for a future then everything else is up for grabs up for play and if we can shift from a scarcity mindset of risk of competition Mm. of control to one of abundance that will unlock i believe a future that is filled with hope that we can have you know strategic action over endless as you call it analysis of of all (laughs) of these things And as we come to the the end, Greg, I'm really interested from, you know, quarter of a century of experience around change and at the forefront of all of this. That is a perpetual motion. Right. As you talk about in one of the principles, you know, learn, relearn, unlearn all of this cycle that we're on. How might organizations start? You know, they can sign up to your manifesto and they think I get it. But what do they do next? <clears throat> What's some practical steps where they can see some, you know, outcomes to help build that muscle, as you talked mm-hmm. about, and send them on the, you know, path to utopia, you know, of dealing with uncertainty. What are some of those practical steps, Greg, that they could take? Sure.
1: Um, so um I'm trying to think of where to start because there are so many. Um, and this actually is a principle in the manifesto, but I'm saying it not because it's a principle in the, man- in the manifesto, but because I've seen it trip so many companies up so many times. Um, is And this does, it seems weird that this might be a place to start, but you need to actually um, fund this stuff, right? <laughs> um, which sounds logical. It sounds obvious. It almost sounds stupid. But um, anybody who's worked in any large organization knows that, you know, at the beginning of the year, you have a 10% innovation fund by the third or fourth month of the year, when you've maybe missed a number, that fund goes away, not the fund for the things that failed, but the fund for the things you haven't done yet. Um, So, um, you know, so organizations do need to invest. And when I say invest, of course, financially, yes. um, But I would say, you know, I mean, I think it's more mythological than it is practical in the case of Google, but like the idea of like 20% time or whatever, you know, kind of structuring and kind of setting aside some allocation of resources to allow your people to explore, to learn, to innovate, to ideate. Uh, experiment, uh, I think is critical. Um, And that's something that leaders can do, you know, even if not financially, here's, you know, 10% of our operating budget, um, but even just from a time standpoint, giving people that kind of flexibility and permission. Um, You know, I think that, you know, another thing that organizations or people in organizations can do, and in fact, I think in many ways must do, um, is the leaders need to actually walk the walk. Um, Far too often, you know, I, I, I joke all the time, you know, companies hire chief digital officers. So then what does that make the CEO, the chief analog officer, right? There is no analog business anymore. All organizations must be digital to the core, So why is the CEO not the chief digital officer? And there always seems to be this sort of built-in mechanism of pass it along, right? Creative role, Make it functional. Put walls around it. Make it somebody's job. So now you have a catalyst on the one hand, great, but a lightning rod on the other. Um, so you know, I think for leaders to take personal accountability for being the change agents for their organization, rather than the sort of the CEO of the status quo. Um, you know, and that has obviously a lot of things associated with it. That's being a student of change and embracing ambiguity and all these other things. Um, But, you know, I think being the role model for change in your organization is an early and immediate step that any leader that's serious about changing the organization needs to take. Um, And I guess this kind of even brings us back to like AQ um, and, you know. I think that you know understanding. You know one thing that we didn't look at in the Adapt Manifesto is okay. Now how does this kind of get down to the individual's ability to do any of these things, (laughs) Um, which obviously is where AQ comes in and gets down to those dimensions, those personal characteristics, environmental traits, and so on. Um, And you know, and I feel like to me it it became important to establish a benchmark for personal change readiness in organizations. It's like, okay, great, we get it. The 10 principles make perfect sense, sign us up. But then you find invariably that you have people all along the adaptability curve, and you don't know how, when or where or why these people are being held back. Um, Is it something in their character? Is it something in the environment? Um, For example, Um, you know, so um, I think, you know, kind of you know, getting a gauge on the level of adaptability as it exists within the team um, is, I think, a, a fundamental and important early
0: step as well. I think it's a responsibility of leadership Absolutely. to take it seriously. You know, in funding that future, you know, you haven't got a problem if you can write a check for it, right? You've then just got yep. a project, right. and so to to think about this in terms of. Okay, well, we might write a check, we might give time, but then what are we doing about this? Have we, how are we measuring it? How are we giving the feedback loops? What's the systematic structure to go from this being an event to being part of our culture? Right. And the, the payoff of that is thriving and sustainability. And it comes back to the adapt or die or adapt and die kind of situation that the risk now of not taking risk outweighs anywhere where it was before. So I'm fascinated by your thinking. I'm very proud and grateful of you and your work of championing the importance of thinking about adaptability sensibly, to consider it to be a student of these things and to expand a movement. And I love the way in which you position it, Greg, in terms of this is a movement. For people to reimagine and to rethink the operating system that we need to take us to next you know in this never normal as you mentioned of your your book if people want to engage and you know you have delivered some incredible talks all over the world on a variety of stages if they want to engage with you what's the best way for them to get in touch greg
1: um easiest way is uh Let's email (laughs) is probably an easy way. And the easiest email to remember is probably me, M-E, at gregverdino.com. Obviously, you can contact me through the DAP Manifesto as well um, or through my website or find me on all of the social networks that you enjoy (laughs) Or, or not, as the case may be. But I'm on all of them, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: And my last question for you, Greg, and it links to the curiosity in doing things for the first time. And I'd like you to share a, a final story of what did you do, if you can share it without it being too else, what did you do for the first time, Greg, uh, that was the last first time you did something, if that makes sense.
1: <laughs> the last first time I did something. Jeez.
0: Yeah. Um, I... Uh, Wow, there's I'm it's a cognitive to... twist to that one.
1: Yeah, there is. So, so the the last I would say, I mean, I mean, probably the last most significant thing I did was uh, teach myself to DJ. <laughs> <laughs> and um and start posting uh sets online so i've got a little uh, little following of folks that follow my uh, dj sets um
0: and what's your genre gonna...
1: of choice greg um it's uh i've been djing house music although i don't listen to that much house music but uh <laughs> but uh that's where i started so
0: <laughs> i love it and that thing for all of you as you're listening not only when was the last time you did something for the first time But is that becoming part of your life perpetually? As children, every time we're doing things, it's for the first time. Let's keep our inner children alive by looking for doing things for the first time. And it will keep us young. It will keep us adaptive. And hey, it might just create the kind of future that we're better off having. So thank you, Greg. It's been a real pleasure. And I look forward to many conversations in the future with you. Thanks so much, Russ. Have a good one. Do you have the level of adaptability to survive and thrive the rapid changes ahead? Has your resilience got more comeback than a yo-yo? Do you have the ability to unlearn in order to reskill, upskill and breakthrough? Find out today and uncover your adaptability profile and score, your AQ. Visit aqai.io to gain your personalized report across 15 scientifically validated dimensions of adaptability. For a limited time, enter code PODCAST65 for a complimentary AQME assessment. AQAI, transforming the way people, teams and organisations navigate change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Decoding AQ. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast directory and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please do leave a review and be sure to tune in next time for more insights from our amazing guests.